0: morning again. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. We, um, two weeks ago, the title was um, Behold the Throne. Then I think it was last week, it was um, Behold the Lion. And this week I've entitled it uh, Behold a White Horse. Revelation 6, 1 through 8, hear now the word of God. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When I opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, such uh, gravity in the words we have just read, such calamity, such tragedy. But we do pray that you would open our eyes to grasp why it is you've given us these words to meditate upon to be ministered by, and I pray for myself that my words would be accurate to the, to the text. Pray for all who would hear, that they would be discerning learners. We pray, Father, that we would examine these words with the recognition that the glorification of Christ is of paramount importance, for He, Father, is the object of what the Scriptures declare. So we pray all this, Father, that by Your Spirit these things would be achieved in His name. Amen. Well, I think it would be an understatement to say that British writer G.K. Chesterton, anybody ever heard of this guy, Chesterton? It would be an understatement to say he had a way with words. one of the most quoted people in the last two centuries. But we are now entering a portion of the Revelation where a quote from Chesterton, I think, is most suitable. He wrote this. Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. (laughs) Just so you know, a commentary is a book designed to help us understand what the Bible means. Now, I'm not entirely sure what Chesterton's view of eschatology or end times was, but here Revelation chapter 6 is where the serious Bible student, I think, must pursue both a charitable and cautious disposition. But we also must recognize that we need to pursue the Scriptures with an uncompromising quest for the truth and the fruit that comes as we examine this final book in the Bible. We can't be so careful, we can't be so charitable that we deny saying things that simply must be said. There are consequences for error, even if the error is unintentional. As many of you know, I went to numerous different seminaries of numerous different theological persuasions and what I'm about to teach In a couple of those seminaries, my professors would radically disagree. Other seminaries, they wouldn't disagree. All godly professors. But just because somebody is godly and they have a Bible in their hand doesn't mean there are no consequences for error. And we need to study this, and we need to come to an understanding of what these things mean. It was in this neighborhood of Revelation that I, about 30 or so years ago, found all the commentaries immensely unhelpful. That's why Chesterton's quote, like, really touched me. It just so happened that all of my commentaries, all of the books I had in my library, helping me understand the Bible, were kind of of the same theological persuasion. So what one guy couldn't convince me of, the other guy couldn't convince me of, and because they were all basically saying the same thing. I didn't even know, I didn't even know there were other options. I didn't know there was another way to look at it. As I've explained before, it was here that I ended the sermon 30 years ago in midstream, mid-sermon, with the horrifying epiphany that I was merely parroting the commentary. And I really didn't know what I was talking about. Horrible feeling when you're in the middle of a sermon. We ended church early that day. Very few people complained. (laughs) Well, it is in this chapter, I mean, we talked a little bit in chapter 4, but here, it's in this chapter, chapter 6, that brothers and sisters in Christ bid a fond, hopefully amicable farewell in terms of eschatology, in terms of end times and we meet again somewhere in chapter 20. So it was kind of like, all right. But here's the deal also, and I know it makes the sermons go a little long. I feel a responsibility at some level to make sure everybody in the room, everybody listening, has a little bit of an idea of what the other positions are. I felt cheated that even in seminary, I was never presented, even if you disagreed, what the other position might be. That happens to this very day even within reform circles, you sit down. I'm on a committee that evaluates young pastors, and you start asking them questions, and you realize they have not even been exposed to the other positions. They're graduating from seminary, and all they know is this one view. I don't want you, and I realize it requires work on your part, but I don't want you to go. This is the only game in town. I want. I do. I am. I'm not neutral. I'm going to. I'm gonna be I'm gonna to try to be persuasive about one position, but I do want you to understand the other positions as well. Now you might be asking yourself, Pastor Paul, what's the big deal? You know, we're gonna bid fond farewell, we'll meet again in chapter 20. Don't Christians disagree on passages in the Bible? Kind of all the time. And we do. I mean our elder board, we sit down. we don't agree on every verse in the Bible and what it means and, you know, how it's to be understood. But, but the differing views on who's on the white horse in this passage has to be on the short list of the mother of all disagreements when it comes to what the Bible actually says the range of conclusions in terms of who this writer is extends from it is Christ to it is the Antichrist. That's a pretty big disagreement. I mean, you have to acknowledge that an error of this magnitude must have consequences. To mistake Christ with the Antichrist... Whatever side you're on, that is kind of a big theological difference that will, that, that will surface in other things. So let us prayerfully approach the opening of these seals. That's what we we're reading about, the opening of these seals and what all that means. This morning, we're going to look at the first four seals being opened. And there may not be a portion of Revelation that has made more appearances in Western literature, but also in sports, in music, in films, than the opening of these four seals, which is otherwise known as the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. That's what we're looking at. I don't know about you, but in, whenever I say that, a picture comes into my mind of the way this has been presented to me by the culture in which I live. Verses 1 and 2. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, with a voice like thunder, come and see. And by the way, in the older manuscripts and some of your versions, it'll just say come. Come which kind of gives a little different flavor of what this passage is saying, either way. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. All right, so before we get into the disagreements of who's on the white horse, I want to hopefully, briefly discuss the agreements on the seals themselves. What is going on, right? We have this scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals, and now we can see the seals kind of being opened or broken. We're going to see, by the way, also, so we have seven seals, we're going to see seven trumpets, and then we're going to see seven bowls. Now, this is where it's going to be very difficult for you, because it's difficult for me. Every time I read it, I'm like, okay, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, you know, like what is all of this stuff? we're also going to see a pattern. The pattern in all three of those is going to be a four, two, one pattern in terms of emphasis and in terms of category. Like right now, we're looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then we'll see a two, then we'll see a one, and we're going to see that with the other, uh, the other two as well. But I've been, let me just, and I'm going to say, we're not going to be able to get into detail, but just so you understand the different ways people look at the breaking of these seals and what it all means, all right? One is that it's a progressive opening of the contents. So you've got this big scroll rolled up, and you break one seal, and then you open it, and you break another seal, and you keep opening it. That's one view. As if if every time a seal is removed, you've got like another portion of kind of history taking place. That's one view. I I don't embrace that view, I think there's some weaknesses to that view. I think one of the weaknesses to that view is that historically, at least contextually, the way they bound a document was with seven seals, and you couldn't open the document until all seven seals were broken. Also, what we have to understand is, as we examine all these things, the trumpets and the bulls, these things aren't necessarily done in chronological order, historically. We'll see, for example, when we get to the sixth seal, that it's a judgment, a, a catastrophe takes place, but we get to the seventh, and we're told that this, the, the, the judgment is going to be withheld for a while. So you're going, well, wait a minute. You're telling me it happened. Now you're telling me that it's not going to happen for a while. So in the Bible, things aren't always chronological. Sometimes they're laid out in terms of emphasis rather than in terms of uh, chronological order. So I don't hold the chronological progressive opening view. Another view is that... These seals scan history from Christ's first coming to a second coming. So as the seals are being broken, it's kind of like historically going from the time of Christ up until the modern era that we're living in. I don't, I don't think that view holds a lot of weight. I don't think there's any way, looking at the original readers, that they would have drawn the conclusion that the breaking of these seals is the course of human history. There, there should, if they wanted to say something like that, there should be an appeal to the length of time, as we see in chapter 20. In chapter 20, we're going to see a thousand years. In the Bible, when you see a thousand years, it's talking about a long period of time. We don't see that here in the breaking of the seals. The most popular view today of the breaking of these seven seals is that these are the events that happen just prior to the second coming. It's all, everything's going south, and the seals are being broken, And the last generation of people on earth can can look around and go, here it is, here's what's happening. And that's the view that most of you hear from your friends, your Christian friends. I don't think that's a very sound view. And again, I can't go into detail as to why. But one reason is, I, I do not see any reason why the original readers, the seven churches, would draw that conclusion it would completely leave them out of the equation of what's even taking place in these visions, and they've already been told more than once that the things that they're going to be reading about are the things which must shortly take place. So the idea that, well, this isn't going to happen for thousands of years seems inconsistent with what the original readers have been told about the time of these events. And finally, and I think in a more solid view, and not a view that I embrace entirely, but I think I've embraced somewhat, the breaking of these seals ideologically teach us about what the church spiritually will be dealing with through the course of its existence. Um, This is called the idealist, the person who's the idealist. And they view Revelation not so much as an account of historical events, but as instructions from God on good over evil in a very immaterial way. And I I do agree with that, but I don't don't think it goes far enough. What you can't read Revelation and neglect to find that there are particular historical events taking place that the readers would know. I mean, when you're told, you know, calculate the number, those original readers probably calculated the number of the beast. There was a specific person in mind when that was written, and not just some kind of ideological instruction even though I I believe it includes that, but I think there were specific historical issues associated with the breaking of these seals. So how you view the breaking of these seals will is somewhat determine how you read the rest of Revelation. So it's kind of important. And I'm going to tell you kind of what I think is the most solid way to understand this, this the fifth view that I'm going to give you right now. And I, again, I can't go into detail. But I think that the fifth view here Places the opening of the seals as not progressive, opening and opening and opening as history unfolds, not the span of history between the first and second comings of Christ, not as a preliminary to the end of the world, are merely as ideals. The seals serve as a sort of, and the way it was explained by one of the professors I listened to, as a sort of book jacket telling you what's in the book. So a seal is broken and it's almost like the trailer to a movie, right? You, that's, and then you get a little look, and then you open another one, you get a little look, and you open another one, you get a little look, and it isn't until the seventh seal is opened, which we'll get to in chapter eight, that all of these things actually start happening. So that's, that's what I think is the kind of most solid way to understand the breaking of the seals. Okay, leaving that aside, forget everything I just said, because I do you want know, you thinking about it while I move on here. You can get the notes, you can read it later, we have question and answer time, we'll get to that. I'm covering a lot of material, so hang with me as we go into the next thing, because I do think, even though it's important to understand the seals, because it does determine how you read the rest of the book, I think more importantly is, who is doing all of this? Who's doing all of this? And when? When does this happen, or did it happen? How, and this is, I have to ask myself while I'm reading this, because I'm going to give a sermon. How is this ministerial? How is this something where you'll all walk out of here somehow richer, or, or challenged, or corrected, or rebuked, or comforted, or whatever it is? How is this ministerial? How is this elevating all of our thoughts of God? How is that happening as a result of this breaking of seals? What does it mean to the original seven churches? Why why were they getting this? How would it affect them? Keep in mind, and we can never forget this, Revelation is written first and foremost to those seven churches. Those seven churches that were in the midst of oppression and persecution. And they were called to do what? Persevere. They're called to overcome. So this is written to them in such a way as to help them be strong and faithful in a hostile environment. So we read that, we learn from that, and then throughout the course of history, any churches that find themselves in the midst of similar discouragements need to kind of recognize the way God comforted them. That is comfort, comforting to me. It's the way we read the entire Bible. I mean, the, the Corinthians was not written to Branch of Hope. It was written to the Church of Corinth. But you and I read it, and when we read it, the way it was challenging or encouraging to them, when we find ourselves in similar situations, it's challenging, encouraging, instructive to us as well. So how would those seven churches have read this? And when we draw that conclusion, how does it minister to you and how does it minister to me? Now, today's, and I know I keep saying it this way, but there's no better way to, I think, say it, popular view. It's, it's pop. I mean, you, let me tell you, somebody gave me a term years ago that I found very valuable in terms of my study of Scripture. They said, you know, there's top, there's pop, and there's slop. He goes, and if, and if, you, and if you are only using pop, your theology is going to be slop. You, you need to study the most brilliant teachers God has provided through the course of human history. We need to know, you know, what did Augustine say? What did Luther say? What did Calvin say? What did Edward say? You know, this is not canonizing them. This is recognizing that in the Bible, God has raised up teachers for our benefit. And they're not just the ones who happen to be alive today. And so we need to kind of look at this and recognize that we are surrounded by a popular view that I would argue is not sound. It is the view that has been the source of many movies, books, I mean, millions and millions of books. We had a conference here a number of years ago, and one of the stars of one of the movies spoke at our conference, and he completely, like, recanted, goes like, I was the left behind guy, let me tell you, they got it wrong. I'm like, wow, I, we offered him a job here, but he didn't take it. But today's most popular view is a view that views the rider of the white horse as the Antichrist. That is the predominant view of the culture in which we live. It is the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 6 who assumes power and control of human history. That's the view. That's what you and I are surrounded by. In his immensely popular book, There's a New World Coming, Hal Lindsay wrote this. Who is the white horse rider? It's the Antichrist himself. In the symbology of the ancient world, a white steed stood for conquest. Eventually, the whole world will claim him as its sovereign. It becomes obvious that the only person who could accomplish all of these feats at this particular stage of the seven-year tribulation, is the person called the Antichrist. Okay, first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that there are many exhales in the room right now. Remember what I said about charitable. I'm not attacking him as a person. This is a book. It's footnoted. You can read it. So I'm addressing the literature, I'm addressing the theology, not the person. But I'm having a very difficult time getting my arms around how anybody could exclude Christ from having the ability to accomplish all these feats. It becomes apparent that only the Antichrist can accomplish all of these things. You're saying Christ can't accomplish all these things. It must be the Antichrist. And let me tell you, there are numerous reasons why I think this is wrong. And not only wrong, I think it is harmful. And I think that many of us are experiencing the consequences of this harmful doctrine. Let me just give you a brief argument as to why I don't think this is the Antichrist. And I believe it is Christ himself. And I'm just going to touch on this because I don't want this to be a seminary lecture. But you've got to kind of get it in order for you to kind of... I don't want you to embrace it because I'm persuasive. I want you to embrace it because you're looking at the Bible going, what? This seems to say something different. The very color white, just in Revelation, has to do with Christ. In 114, it's Christ with white hair. He gives us a white stone. We walk with Him in white. White garments are given to us by Him over and over and over. He comes on a white cloud, There is a white throne by which he judges. And not to mention, the only other reference in Revelation where there is somebody on a white horse, in Revelation chapter 19, everybody agrees that it's Christ. So in chapter 19, you have somebody on a white horse. Everybody thinks that it's Jesus. But in chapter 6, we have somebody on a white horse, and it's not Jesus. And a couple other things, and we'll move on. In chapter 5, we read that Christ has overcome to open the seals. Now, that word overcome, and not to get too far into the Greek here, but that word overcome, it, in its root is the same word as the word conquest in this verse. So we see in chapter 5, it is Christ who has the conquest, and then in chapter 6, we have that, he's out conquering and having a conquest, and what we're saying, no, these are two different people. The arguments go on and on. But we even read in our call to worship today, and something we see in the Old Testament all the time, and that is the language of conquering used to depict what is done by God. That is the language that you'll read all through the Old Testament in terms of what God is accomplishing. It is by conquest. It is Him conquering. Now, perhaps... (coughs) All of this is resisted because we don't feel comfortable with the image of Jesus playing such an aggressive role in dethroning evil in history. We just don't like the Jesus that everybody paints pictures of as if he's a hippie, right, in Venice. That's the Jesus that the Western church loves, the SoCal, brown-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, And the idea that this Jesus is conquering is something that goes against kind of the way we want to feel about Jesus. Well, let me just tell you, and I don't want to jump too far ahead here. Let us examine just briefly those on whom these judgments fall and their assessment of who's doing all of this. All right, so we look at the Bible and go, okay, all this stuff is happening. Who do they, what are they saying? Who are they saying is doing this? Revelation, same chapter, 6, 16. Hide us. Now, there, it's kind of like, wow, this stuff is going down. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, right in the context, we're told who it is. It's, it's not the wrath of the Antichrist. It's the wrath of the Lamb. One of the problems we have with the cultural presentation of four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and I told you a minute ago, when I think of it, a, a picture comes into my head, and I don't even remember where it is. But the picture that is presented in Western literature and Western culture are four horsemen riding next to each other. Maybe you can tell me where I got that. But that's the idea. You got four horsemen riding next to each other, side by side, as if they're equals. But this is not the image of the vision. Jesus, the one on the white horse, comes conquering, and he, and he only has a crown on his head. The other three don't have a crown on their head. And in his train are the other three horses. So this is something Christ is doing, and we have the other three behind him. All right, we don't have to go into detail on the other three horses, but I think the message is obvious, but let's read it, and we'll just touch on it before we finish. Verses uh, 3 through 8. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Okay, what we're going to find as we examine this further is that even though all of this, is coming from the divine hand. All of this is coming from the one, you know, who's on the white horse. And by the way, one thing that should jump out at us is that Christ never remains idle while evil kind of travels through history. He's not just sitting around in heaven hoping things will work out in the course of human history. But the way this works out is person to person. It'll include other things too, like nature and earthquakes. You know, but these are all measurable things, observable things. The red horse is a symbol of blood where we're told peace is taken from the earth. Simply put, and I think this follows all through history, where Christ is rejected, warfare follows. The, the peace that we all desire on earth will never happen with the rejection of Christ. The atheistic, communistic leaders of the 20th century bitterly proved that point. If we could just remove religion, religion is the opiate of the masses, religion is a mess, Okay, we need to get religion out of here, and so it was almost like a 20th century experiment where we are left not to religion, but to the will and whim of man and they're still cleaning up the blood of the 20th century. It is a failed experiment, and the Scriptures so declare that these people who have turned their back on Christ will be left to the consequences of their own natures. In the context that we're reading here in Revelation, the peace would be taken from Jerusalem, which ironically, Jerusalem means dwelling of peace, and peace is going to be taken from it. Who's going to take peace from the Roman armies? In a a primary sense, the the one on the white horse. In a secondary sense, it's going to be the Roman armies. The Roman armies are going to sack Jerusalem. You know, there's this promise we read last week in Isaiah that the fruit of Christ will be peace on earth. Reconciliation between natural enemies, you know, the lion and the lamb, and so forth. But in order for this to be accomplished, evil must be deposed. You must not only advance that which is good, you need to contend with that which is evil. It's a a war on two fronts. In chapter 19, we see Christ on the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth. What is a sword in the Bible? Yeah, it's the Word of God. It's the Gospel. So when we get there, we'll see the Gospel going forth. But here, so we got the white horse, right? we got Christ. We have Christ on the white horse taking rank against those who are committed to wickedness. He doesn't slumber. He deals with wickedness. It's been suggested, and I think with some merit, that the taking of peace from the earth is not necessarily the inciting of men to fight. He simply orders his angels to take away the conditions of peace. All all that has to happen in order for this writer to succeed is to allow men to follow their own natures. Do what you want to do. I mean, we, we kind of view that as... Yeah, I like to do what I want to do. In Romans 1, it's a judgment. God turns them over to the desires of their own heart. It it would almost be a, a parent taking their little one for a walk who wants to run in the street, and you're just going, all right, go ahead, run in the street. I mean, you just let them do what they want to do. It's a judgment. And all you have to do in order for this horseman to succeed is allow people to be... What they by the by their fall and sinful natures desire to be. Now, the black horse expresses the inevitable consequences of warfare. And it amounts to a scarcity of food, right? You got scales, you're wearing them out, you got barley, you got wheat. Barley is barley was the poor person's wheat. And so when we look at all of this, you know, we're kind of going there is going to be what always happens during war, and that is a lack of food. And uh, if you do the math on this, you realize what's going to be happening. The context here is you will work all day just to eat, just to have enough to live. And And the wine and the oil, it's kind of like this is not going to be full and total deprivation. You'll still survive. But what we have are the ravages of warfare and the lack of ability for people to thrive. They will merely be surviving. Well, then we have the fourth horse, and the fourth horse has a color that translators have a hard time translating, like this pale horse. They say it's a greenish-grayish color. Some people have compared it to a corpse on this horse is death and Hades, which means death and the place of death. All right? So that's kind of the image that you're getting. I think here we have yet another argument for Christ being at the helm of all of this. Death and Hades, we read in Revelation 1 18, he, Jesus said what? He holds the keys to death and Hades. So you here you have another, just a few chapters later, you're going, well, who's in charge here? Who has the keys to these things? Again, the popular view, in my estimation, is so amazingly wrong. And I've been rereading these books, and I read these books, and I'm like, I think to myself, you know, are they not examining other positions? Because some of them, some of the things that are said are wrong to the point of, it seems to me, almost intentional. And I, again, I can't question motives, but I'm like, if you, if you went to seminary, you know that's not true. And yet you've got it written here. Didn't you have an editor? Didn't your editor go, well, you know what? This really isn't that position and so forth. But I, you know, it forces me to take a deep breath, but not ignore it at the same time. how do we not understand who holds the keys to death in Hades? Then we see the killing, as we saw with the red horse. The power to kill. But then added to that is famine. If you have the ESV, it'll be famine, pestilence, wild beasts. Some some versions leave out the pestilence. By the way, all of these things, if you read the first century historian, Josephus, the Jewish historian, everything we're reading here. He, who never read Revelation, didn't have access to the Revelation, records all these things actually taking place. When you read Josephus, you feel like you're reading the Revelation. He wasn't even a Christian. He was a historian. This all happened when Jerusalem fell under siege to the Roman Empire. Now, for the sake of understanding... This language, right, wild beasts, pestilence, and so forth, this portion of of Revelation chapter 6, many people view as this is the second coming. Like I said, the popular view is this is what's happening, and the end is near, time is short, and this is going to be the end of the world. They'll say, well, it's very literal. You've got to take this very literally in terms of angels coming down or horses coming down and this type of thing. What we have to understand here is how are we supposed to read our Bibles? I've mentioned this before. In Revelation, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. You can't understand Revelation if you don't understand the Old Testament. They refer- the writer references it in 22 chapters, you have some, I forget what it is, 450 allusions to the Old Testament. And what about this, this idea of famine and pestilence and wild beasts? When we read about that in the Old Testament, what is it talking about there? Let me just give you one example. Ezekiel 14:21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment? sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. I I just picked that one. There are any numbers. But you see the striking similarity there, I hope, to Revelation chapter 6. What is he talking about? What is that in reference to? Well, everybody recognizes that that is in reference to Jerusalem being sacked by the Babylonians. It is God raising up one nation to judge another nation. That's what it meant there, and in Revelation, that's what it means there. God is raising up one nation to judge another nation. And then you might say, but as bad as, you know, Israel was at the time, they weren't as bad as Rome, and you might be right. And then God will judge Rome for what they do to Jerusalem. And if you have a hard time with that, you need to read Habakkuk, because that's exactly what he says about the Chaldeans judging the Israelites. Now, this will all become much clearer, I hope, as we go further into the chapter. I'm going to stop with this. But let's not stop. Let's not conclude by merely musing at these scriptural prophecies of calamity, which is so popular today. We're not going to have a prophecy conference You know, I mean, where you just go there and you kind of muse about, you know, I mean, not to be mean, but I just feel like you put on your Star Trek outfit. You go there and you talk about the latest nuclear devices hidden here or there. And I just feel like those things to me just do not seem very profitable. This is not written for us to go, wow. Good thing we're going to be raptured, because that's the view, by the way. The popular view is we're watching from heaven Man, this is amazing what's taking place here. That is not the reason this was written. This was not written for the amusement of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Remember the recurring theme of chapters 2 and 3. Because we have to read all of Revelation with that in mind. And that is the call to faithfulness, perseverance, the call to overcome in the face of religious and political oppression. I know many of you feel that way right now with the current direction. Small potatoes, right? But the same comfort. No, we're nowhere near where those seven churches were in Asia Minor in terms of political oppression and religious persecution. But the comfort should be the same comfort. There is very much a ministerial aspect to all of this. They needed to see this in light of what they must have viewed as overwhelming odds against us. And I've said it before, it almost has to be laughable that in chapter 1, 5, Jesus is called the ruler of the kings of the earth. People today, you'll hear them mock the idea that we should have a more optimistic view of the direction of history. They're like, well, if Jesus is currently the king, he's not doing a very good job. You know, you hear Christians say things like this. That passage doesn't say he's going to become the ruler of the kings of the earth. It says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And what these seven churches are getting a view of is what he will in fact do as king. These churches, we, we need to know that God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. What those churches need to understand, what we need to understand is that God will, in fact, does, in fact, keep his promise. What promise am I talking about here? And here, I think, is another great error by you know the the dispensational community in terms of what promise God has made regarding to his church. Because God has promised, he has made a promise to his covenant people that he will bless those who bless them and he will curse those who curse them. In the old covenant that was Israel. In the new covenant that is the church. That is a promise that those churches needed to hear, that we need to hear you know Samuel John Stone wrote a hymn in the 19th century I think we sing it sometimes The Church is One Foundation you guys ever heard of that hymn Church is One Foundation which interestingly enough quotes Revelation 6 How long O Lord we didn't get there today How long O Lord it's the, it's this call for God's judgment call for God's vindication. So he quotes that, but there's another quote in there that I think we need to appreciate, and that is, I think, the very biblical proposition that, quote, the church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend. That we, we are being defended. These early churches... And all the churches throughout history find themselves in similar discouragements needed to know that they were currently, we we are currently, they were at the time currently citizens of an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom of which there will be no end. Rome would come to an end. Babylon already came to an end. Greece came to an end. The Medo-Persians came to an end. All these great kingdoms, they rose and they're gone. They rose and they're gone. But they needed to understand that there's a kingdom that you're a part of that endures forever. Let me tell you, it's much easier to appear faithful when the strong current of social dynamics is supportive of the Christian ethos. It's just so much easier to live in a land where everybody's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, you're a pastor? Wow! Oh, hey, it's the pastor. You know, I don't want to sound whiny, but I, I have not, I can't remember the last book or movie or anything else that I've, saw, I've seen where the pastor is not the most evil, despicable person, you know. I mean, I just watched two. I just watched two, and I'm like, throw us a bone here. I mean, we're on all that, you know. But you're so easily targeted, you know, as the lying, cheating, insecure, on and on and on and on. I mean, there was a time when, you know, I mean, somebody asked me a long time ago during Q&A if I felt comfortable with the idea of being called reverend. And it it caught me on the spot. It it really did. I'm like, you know, if, if you're supposed to have a position of humility, then why do we call you reverend? And they didn't say it like that. That's the way I heard it, you know. <laughs> but it dawned on me that, I, and I usually don't use that. I usually, Pastor Paul, just because it's kind of, alliterates better, I guess. I don't know, people are more comfortable saying Pastor Paul. But it dawned on me that it's an office I have. And when, I, when, I, when they asked that question, it made me think about it, and I realized, I, I am called to live up to that office. I don't view it as something where, hey, bow the knee to me, I viewed it more as, are you li- living in a manner consistent with the office that God has called you to? You know, there's, there's this idea that we all have to live in a manner consistent with who we are. And then, by the way, not just the pastor, but all of us as Christians. But it's so much easier when everybody's kind of behind you, when, every, when everything's Christian. But that Ethos was not present for those seven churches. There was nothing about that environment that was at that time socially, economically beneficial to being part of the church. It was just the opposite. And also in that hymn by Stone, we read, you know, talking about the church will endure and there'll be many false sons in her pale. So he's like, you know, the church is going to make it, even though there are going to be false Christians, like wolves in sheep's clothing, even today. And with, the, with this downturn that we have seen in the last 50 years or so, we see quislings are on the rise. A, a quisling is somebody who collaborates with and embraces the enemy, trying to make the ways of the world the ways of the church. You know, you, you see these things, and again, I don't want to question motives. People are like, hey, we got to grow the church. Why aren't millennials coming to the church? Let's do this. And you, and you look at it, and maybe, maybe it's good advice. Maybe it's because, you know, millennials don't like carpet or whatever. Okay, let's get rid of the carpet. I, want, I don't care, you know. But oftentimes it's like, well, you got to change the message. You got to change the focus. You got to change, you know, and all this. And you're like, going, well, no, no. You can't play that game. And all of this, by the way, was certainly not written as is so popular today to somehow explain and justify how it's God's plan for history to descend into spiritual, moral, economic, and religious collapse. It should grieve us, and I hear it all the time, when we read of some grotesquely immoral conquest in our culture, only to be almost excitedly met by the words of our Christian friends, kind of going, oh, oh, it's the last days. It's, you know, something horrible happens, some evil decision is made, and they're like, it's the last days. As if it's some kind of silver lining to the advancement of evil. I can't say amen to that, but that is where our hearts are. Now, I know it's getting worse, but whew, are you ready? You know, for the rapture or whatever you think is going to happen? No. Chapter 19 We see with the judgment of the great early oppressors of the church, of the truth and the advancement of the gospel done, we see now the advancement of the gospel moving forward. With with Christ on the white horse, with the sword coming out of his mouth. Here, that same Christ, chapter 6, he is on a white horse, watching over his bride. That's what we have. If I'm in those churches and I look and I see this and I realize that white horse is my advocate and he is watching over me, he is watching over us. You, know, you're, you find dismay at the political movements that are taking place in our nation and throughout the world. We need to fix our eyes upon the one who's on the white horse, fixing our eyes upon Christ for our genuine and true and lasting peace, especially in light of the call to persevere. The kingdoms of this world, which, by the way, are at very best a house divided, cannot stand. But there is a God in heaven who deposes kings and puts kingdoms to an end when they defy that which is good and right and true, when they defy the God of truth himself. And in light of that great promise, we are called to persevere. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would be encouraged that we serve a God in heaven who neither sleeps nor slumbers, but you very much have your eye on history, and you will end things when you've determined it is the right time for these things to end. You will begin things when you have determined they are the right time for them to begin. But we do pray that in all of this, that we would recognize your divine hand in human affairs, that we as your children might ever persevere, that we would walk faithfully all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.